On this episode of the Smash Up Derby, we talk with Mia Ginta. Mia worked for the Pennsylvania Network of Unity Coalitions, an organization that would go into small towns and organize against the Klan. What are the lessons from that work? What did she learn about the way the Klan organizes? How do you successfully organize against a white supremacist group? Those are the questions we ask today on the Smash Up Derby. Hello, this is Sam Smucker and, and Jonathan Kassam. Here we are back with the Smash Up Derby after uh, a hiatus involving uh, a lot of moving of apartments and houses and uh, new jobs and, and new situations for us both. And that sort of got us a little waylaid here, but we're happy that we can be back on the air. Jonathan, Jonathan's and, in Pittsburgh. Yes, the, uh, uh, the great city of Pittsburgh. Anything? The Paris of Appalachia. And so this is uh, this is our inaugural, and I'm in Carbondale, Illinois now, and so this is our, you know, our, which our inaugural, Paris of what? which is the Paris of the Shawnee, I suppose. Oh, okay. It's the, the it was the gateway to, uh, I don't know, actually, I think it didn't even exist during the Civil War, but it was sort of the, <laughs> gate, the gateway to the Civil War. Well, it was sort of the way that the Union troops went down, uh, went down the uh-huh. Mississippi, uh, but, uh, but it's just sort of nearby. I think the, the city actually didn't exist yet. But anyway, that's sort of the, the uh, area. It's a real small town, a little small town, a small college town. So we are finally back, and uh, we think we have a, a really uh, interesting show for you today. So I am uh, here in Pittsburgh with me is uh, Mia Jinta, who's a, a former UE organizer who also uh, worked, and we're going to talk with her because she worked uh, with the Pennsylvania Co- Network of Unity Coalitions in the mid to late 90s, uh, which was, uh, um, well, we'll let her talk about it, but we think it has some, some relevance for the current situation today. Um, okay, I grew up in um, northeastern Pennsylvania in the anthracite coal mining region. I come from a very strong union family. Um, I was a UE organizer in New England for from the mid seventies through the mid to late eighties in and, um, in New England. And just to clarify, for in case uh, we have new listeners, the UE <laughs> is the United Electrical Workers Union. It's the union that Jonathan is the communication director for at this point. So, um, and, and so and you Sam also and and I at one point was a UE organizer for many years. So, uh, so Mia, so you were a UE organizer from what year? For, at what time? Uh, from the mid '70s through uh, the mid '80s, actually. You saw the deindustrialization pretty hard, huh? Oh, definitely. Um, I also saw growing up what happened when the mines closed, and mm-hmm. you know, and and the, the, the beginnings of the closing of the silk mills and the garment factories. And in my hometown, the only industry that was left was uh, um, a munitions industry that made bombs for Vietnam. <laughs> so, yeah, so what happened uh, from a very early age? Um, I grew up with stories about the about the Ku Klux Klan. My family were first-generation Americans from, from southern Italy, and my mother would tell me stories about cross burnings. Um, that she would be on her way to school in the morning, and she would have to walk by these slag heaps in the Klan, and the Klan's crosses were still smoldering from the night before when they would have a rally. My father would tell me stories about how he would throw rocks at them from the tops of slag heaps when they were burning crosses in, um, 
in you know Catholic cemeteries and um, I just grew up knowing that from them and from other members of my family that this was wrong that racism was wrong that these anti these these hate groups whether it be the Klan and obviously in later years you know Nazis are uh, offshoots of the Nazi party uh, during the 30s and 40s in this country were, were anti-working class. I come from a really strong union family too. So I just kind of just knew that you know, had to do something. And um, the Pennsylvania Network of Unity Coalitions was founded around 1995 as a grassroots organization with a lot of church and uh, progressive people involved, doing things on a local level, trying to do community education and things like that. But the impetus of the group's real getting funding and getting started was when a a group of a Ku Klux Klan, the American Ku Klux Klan, headed by a guy named C. Edward Foster, uh, set up Klan headquarters in southwestern Pennsylvania in a little town called Yukon. And they set it up on a farm where they found a a friendly farmer who was uh, who was very discouraged. He was kind of at his wit's end. His cows were dying, and he was blaming pollution from a plant that I believe was owned by Westinghouse for polluting the groundwater. So uh, the Klan decided to be his buddy, and they took on this anti-corporate environmental stand right there, uh, right across the line from Allegheny County. Um, and set up their headquarters on this guy's farm, um, right in the middle of this little community that didn't even have a police force. It was also a former coal mining community. What happened was that this particular group of the Klan also made some connections with some neo-Nazi groups, and they held a rally in downtown Pittsburgh in um, 1997. And I was still working um, with the Urban League of Pittsburgh at the time as a community organizer. And uh, I just volunteered, and one thing led to another, and they got some funding for a full-time position. So I took it. The funding was very irregular, but the work was important, so I just, just did it. And the first place I started working was with the folks in Yukon, who were basically frightened, scared, didn't know what to do. And there were all kinds of reasons why people were against the Klan being there. Some people were there for the right reasons. Some people were there because they were concerned that their property values were going to go down. Um, and it was it was really trying to figure out what were the values of that community? What were the good progressive values of that community? What was the how did the community see itself and to try to, you know, I learned with the, with the UE, you always try to bring people forward in some kind of mission that goes beyond their own immediate self-interest. So the, everybody in that town was Catholic. I think there was like one Methodist in the whole town. So we used the Catholic church as the, um, as the impetus to, to get things going. Well, let's talk about how um, the group came to Yukon and what they did in terms of trying to organize the townspeople, I mean, did they, what, what did they do and did they have success? They, I always felt that these groups pick, you know, they're good organizers. And I think they picked up something in the, kind of in the air, you know, that things in this town were changing. Um, it wasn't all, people felt threatened, you know, the little suburbs around them were becoming more integrated. Um, there were fewer jobs. 
things were changing. People's kids were leaving town. It wasn't the same as it always was. And then there was this concern about um, pollution uh, from this this plant that Westinghouse had, and they found a, a friend with this farmer and his cronies, um, and you know said, "Hey, we'll pay you rent, and we'll set up our headquarters there." And they did. And what did that mean to set up their headquarters? I mean, did they have a staff, or was it just a place where people came on the weekend, or both? Both. I mean, they had weekly rallies there. People came from. Um, from different parts of Pennsylvania that were affiliated with these various groups. People came from Ohio. People came from West Virginia. I think sometimes people came from Illinois. They would just basically, particularly on weekends, just take over the town. And people were frightened. And I remember one particular evening that we decided that we were going to make people, it was like organizing against a gang in a community, that we were going to get people to come out of their homes and not be afraid on a Saturday night. So we went down the street with like boxes of donuts and like a thing <laughs> of lemonade and knocked on people's doors and said, come on out, let's, let's, have a, let's have some lemonade and a donut or a cookie on your porch while the Klan was, you know, is right there, you know, a few feet away from you. Because uh, a lot of houses were built around this guy's farm, so their backyards above his farm, so they could see everything that was going on. It was really frightening for for, mm. for people, particularly the older people who remembered the Klan from the 20s. And I remember once walking down, it was kind of a, a part where there wasn't any houses, and I heard this clicking noise. I mean, I'm a city girl. I didn't grow up around hunters and things like that. And one of the women said, you hear that? And I thought, what? And she said, well, they're... They're doing stuff, I forget what term she used, with their rifles uh, to try to scare us. Well, fortunately, I didn't know what the noise was. I just thought it was clicking noises. So um, so we just kept on, kept on going, you know, just kept on going. You had to. And so it doesn't, but it doesn't sound like they made huge inroads then with the local population. They just more had scared most folks. I think so. I think it was it was mostly putting people, you know, making people feel fearful. But they did. They obviously did some recruiting. They obviously did some recruiting, and and so that's where you know working class peer pressure comes in. You know how you know when somebody does something in a shop that wasn't right, that wasn't respectful of another member. You know the people would would very forcefully but politely try to pull them away from doing being part of that behavior. Sometimes people were successful, sometimes they weren't. Um, so it continued, and the tension flared. They were really trying to build up the tension. Um, eventually, we, we were able to get the farmer to get them to leave and also get some of the people arrested. Um, we had a, um, a state senator who was particularly helpful with us in figuring out some obscure law having to do with, with vice laws to get them out of there. But in the meantime, the community was held hostage. Community did not have a local police force. We had to depend on the state police that were miles away. And so, you know, we, community was continually exposed to this stuff. Uh, and they just continually held events, you know, unity picnics, forums, uh, you know, trying to do things in a peaceful way, but was, without any real political content to the now, work. Now, was the town, did the town have a large minority population or any, huh? min any minority population at all? Yeah, the one Methodist. 
the one <laughs> okay I, I mean I'm sort of being a little I'm being facetious here but you know Catholics were the majority yeah. and um, there were a few Protestants but there weren't a, there was not a minority population at all and in fact there was there was kind of fear and suspicion of mm-hmm. you know because people didn't know people always lived in this little town and went to school and worked and shopped in this little town Mm-hmm. And were the were the clan recruiting elsewhere in Pennsylvania? Around? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, where they also were very successful um, in recruiting was the next town over, which was West Newton, which was a little more integrated, um, a little more of an industrial base. There were some factories and things like that in the town. And um, they would show up at um, city council meetings in their robes. They would they burned crosses on um, on the banks of the river in that particular town too. And one of the leaders um, was uh, was a was an elder, an African American gentleman in um, Deacon Thomas. And he was an elder in the Baptist church in town. And uh, he was the son of a slave. And he did a lot to um, to really educate the people in both communities about what it was like to be African-American in southwestern Pennsylvania when he was growing up and what it was like in you know, the present time. And um, he, showed, he showed a great deal of courage. And I will never forget that man. You so, know, I remember once the client sent off little... Uh, send off crosses down the river with, uh-huh. and little little paper things. <laughs> I mean, they, some of the stuff they did was, it wasn't, it was just, I don't know, they weren't always the brightest things. And I remember Deacon Thomas going and just ripping them, taking them out of the water. And he said, and people said, well, that's pretty defiant. And he goes, well, he's, you know, we've always had to fight for our freedom. This isn't any different than how I've lived my life. I mean, some of this stuff, like the burning the crosses and the, the th- you know, sending stuff down the river. I mean, I, I can't imagine that that has a ton of appeal among people stuck in the sort of Ku Klux Klan traditions that not a lot of people are going to identify with. Did it have that? Did that resonate with people at all? In other words, were they able to recruit by doing that? They did recruit some, particularly, I would say, in some of the outlying areas where there wasn't a presence of a unity group. I mean, mm-hmm. I know for I know for a fact they were able to recruit, particularly some younger people, mm-hmm. fairly disenfranchised. I, I hate to make it sound like all people involved in the right are these, you know, these kind of, you know, bumbling idiots, um, but they were able to really um, a lot of a lot, you know, younger people. So, and in this case, you're 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 building a coalition. So you're saying you're using the Catholic Church as sort of the the sort of base of it. And was was the Catholic Church cooperative? They wanted to be a part of this. Um, and did they take oh, the lead? Yeah, they they did. The local priest did, but um, I don't recall getting very much help from the bishop, to be honest with you. And in West Newton, which was the next town over from Yukon. Um, it was Yukon uh, um, was Catholic, West Newton was Protestant, and so it was the Methodists and the Presbyterian churches that took the lead in organizing that. 
and, um, and what did it mean to organize it? So they would, um, I mean, would they, they would have meetings with sort of leaders in town or? Yeah, and it would, it would you know, organizing them to, very much like you see in Pittsburgh now, having signs or symbols of unity or all are welcome here or, are, you know, we used ribbons. Um, people created their own, their own symbols of unity and anti-hate and, you know, to display them and just, just create a kind of a foundation that hate's not welcome here. But there was nothing, and this is, you know, this is my being self-critical here, there was nothing done, I think, because we were like, the, we were kind of always in crisis, moving from one clan rally happening to another, but there wasn't an attempt to build a foundation for people to understand where, where racism comes from, where prejudice comes from. You know, so that was that was a problem because I, you know, we were all over the state of Pennsylvania. Um, we weren't just in southwestern Pennsylvania. So, can you talk with us about other other locations in Yukon? They they sort of moved in and they set up a headquarters and they sort of sounds like they did a lot of like rallies and strutting around and that kind of thing. But did they take other approaches in other places? Yeah, um, the other one to me that was probably uh, was really very interesting was uh, and it had a potential for a lot of violence was um, in Somerset County there was a, a bar called the Casanova which was I guess at one point was just like kind of a local kind of old-fashioned roadhouse bar mm-hmm. stone you know stone building near a creek and it very quietly became the local gay bar I'm not sure where he came from. When he moved into the town, this has all been kind of a blur to me, but there was um, a guy who had his own church, which pretty much consisted of his his wife and his kids and a few followers, and he was able to convert um, some of the um, local churches to join in with him, and the Klan and the neo-Nazi groups, and another group of the Klan. There were, you know, the, the Klan always divides and divides among its divides and divides. So um, they decided to target this particular bar and the patrons and threatened kill all gay people kind of signs that they would hold up. Um, But what they also were very successful in doing was, um, once again, to create fear and unrest and, and challenge people to actually doing fighting. They also, uh, you know, outed people. And in this particular community, people weren't ready to be outed. Um, One guy that was a patron of the bar was outed in church and kicked out of his church. And he was a very, he was a deeply religious individual. And he was banned from the churches and the community. And in a small town like that, that was a big thing. And they would yeah. do this by, um, I mean, so they would go to the bars and and stand outside mm-hmm. and um, and sort of pick at the bars. But would they then try to speak to the rest of the community about oh, the yeah. bar? And how, how would they do that? They would just they would basically do it through the churches, through the the local fire department, the volunteer fire departments, whatever community groups, whatever religious groups there were, people were were ex- were exposed, and people were denounced by their family members. Um, it was, and then um, there were 
I remember at one point there was a, a, a group of very militant, this was during the, the ACT UP cry out, I can't remember. ACT UP. ACT UP group. There was a big ACT UP group in Pittsburgh, and they wanted to come in with, you know, guns and, you know, take on the, or whatever. They wanted to actually have a down and out battle with these, it was this guy's church, the local ministers that he organized, a neo-Nazi group, and this Klan group, Barry Black's group, I can't think of what his group's name was. And interestingly enough, Bert, uh, this guy, uh, Barry Black, was the sheriff in the next county over because nobody nobody voted, nobody ran for sheriff or constable, whatever the position was. So he ran unopposed and he got the one vote he needed and he was the constable for that for that locale, so he was there too. And um, the other thing was, you know, he, because of what he did, he could license plates and all that. He could, right, right. yeah. It was all very, very convenient and very scary for people. Um, so the ACTA people wanted to wanted to have wanted to do battle. That's not necessarily what the people in that community wanted. Mm -hmm. They wanted to be able to go to church. They wanted to continue to be part of the volunteer fire department. They wanted to fix their car with the guy next door like they'd been doing for years, but they just wanted to be accepted for being gay. So it was really a battle of changing the culture in that community. We were able to get some of the churches to come out again and um, and start working with us and, and, and supporting the patrons of the bar. This was the strangest thing I think I've ever had. We had a pre-Christmas uh, vigil in the bar with uh, most of the ministers in the town attending. So why, why would the ministers at attend? Because I assume that the like these different churches were... It even, you know, this is only 50, 20 years ago, but they would have been fairly anti-gay. Mm -hmm. We found some churches, um, some of the Lutheran churches out there were, were shocked at the level of hate and the, you know, let's kill all the gays, but not exactly kill them, but let's just call on God to kill them mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And that just... Um, that just motivated some people to follow what they believe their faith was about. And they started welcoming our work. And that was that was an important turning point in that particular community. Um, and was your and role so, to go and make those contacts with those ministers? Oh, and Yeah, definitely. And the other thing was to find uh, people in the community that were who were straight to go out to go out with me. And once again, um, some of these people had trade union backgrounds, mm -hmm. so they understood what it was. I mean, this was like the thing that I always did. I was trying to find out what churches were progressive and what unions or what people, what unions were people members of in that town. Once again, these were former union members because they had lost all their jobs. You know, mm -hmm. they were they were working for, you know in a store, in a warehouse, whatever, but they still had that trade union background, which was very, very important. Why is it so important? Because union people understand, um, and this sounds very trite and something that we've <laughs> been saying all the time, but, you know, the bosses, the powers that be always try to divide us. And they understand that you don't win anything. You don't have a better life in this workplace, in your community, unless you're working together division, whatever it is, hurts us. And um, that was, you know, some people were, were stronger in, 
in that based on the union and the experiences they had. I found the mine workers to be great, actually, mm-hmm. um, in in fighting these groups. But I also just found that you know there were there were union people that you know were on strike once and they remembered what it was like and. Um, it, it gave people a sense of power, too, that they were controlling their lives again, very much like people feel when they're, you know, when they're organizing uh, for the very first time or they get a good contract. You see those, I call them light bulbs going off in people's eyes and their minds and, and people start making those connections. So how did things play out in this particular case? So the ministers held Christmas meeting at the, at the bar? Mm-hmm. And the community came, and um, I mean, several members from the community came. Um, the patrons of the bar came. It was a very good night, and that was the start of the tide turning. There was much work that needed to be done after that, but eventually, they found that they, you know, they did not have a, a basis in which to, you know, to, to work. The hate groups, the hate yeah. Groups. This, this guy, this guy, Ron McRae, I forget the name of his of his so-called church, but um, he eventually left town and the good citizens pre- prevailed. And, you know, I mean, the town was the town became different after that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very, it was it was just a different place. Once again, it was how, how was it different? What do you mean? It was different in that. um the gay population wasn't living in the closet anymore. They were maybe on various levels, you know, uh, not shunned by the community. In some cases, actually welcomed by the community. The guys who used to go to the bar could go hunting with their pals down the road. Um, the values of that particular community were shared by straight and gay alike. I mean, how, how is it that the tide turns against these groups when they come to organize in a town? When is it that they decide to give up? When they find it's not a a fertile ground to recruit. And so when they, and and does that require that people stand up to them or what does it require to make that happen? Immediately it requires that people stand up and they stand up in a a unified way that doesn't, that doesn't incite any violence, mm-hmm. you know, and I just want to... And, like, what does that look like? I guess I'm trying to, like, map this out. If somebody, if, if this happens to somebody in their town... Well, I think it, different things in different communities, you know, it, it may mean displaying the, the unity signs. It may be attending unity events. It may be developing curriculums in the schools, which um, schools are like the worst. Pla- they're, they're some of the best places to for, for hate to grow. And they're also some of the, you know, they're also some of the best places to work with people. You just, you just create an environment that, you know, it, it's not welcome, you know, hate's not welcome here. But the thing is, these groups, you know, and I think this is especially true today, because I kind of look at what happened back then, because it was back then, as kind of a trial run for both sides. You know, they can sniff out the wedge issues, you know, whether it be homophobia, whether it be an abortion clinic, whether it be a, a, a detention center for kids, they can sniff out those those issues, the environmental issues in Yukon, they can sniff out those things and go in and use those wedge issues to create divisions. 
if we don't if we don't start working on those issues, uh, you know, we're in big trouble. I mean, I think I mentioned earlier one of the best. They're good organizers. One of the best organizers I ever met with this woman was very unusual because she was head of a Klan group in rural Pennsylvania. And she would actually go out and and not knock on doors, but kind of hang out where, you know, we're working class people. We're trying to figure out how to make ends meet. So, you know, somebody had um, put out a table in their front lawn and were selling, you know, used clothing for kids for back to school. She would seek those places out and go out and start talking to people and say, it sure is rough. You know, Um, those kids over there in that place, they get free coats, meaning those black kids get free coats. Look at us. We're getting second and third hand for our kids. And then if she felt she got somebody on a hook, she would she would pull them in. She would pull them in. She was good. What what was she who was she organizing for? The Klan. How much is this related to the loss of working class jobs and um, how much are they able to use that? I mean, there's been this whole discussion um, and debate about the relationship between um, the real destruction of the industrial base and the rise of the right. Uh, how close, in your sense, are they related? I think it's part of the way... That- in which the right organizes. I mean, um, the working class ideally should be part of the progressive movement, and I don't mean the Democratic Party either. But they're able. But these groups are able to use those those the wedge issues. I call them the wedge issues. The fear they play on the on on the fear. Well, it's interesting to me that you sort of you were talking about in the '90s. There, you were able to counter them because people, even though they no longer had union jobs, had had union experience. And, and of course, now, 20 years later, the number of people who had union experience is much, much smaller. Yeah. And so, so many people just have had no experience of actual, I mean, particularly interracial solidarity, but of any kind of collective action. What did, um, I mean, to what extent did the Klan or uh, the other organizations that you were confronting, were they able to build permanent basis for themselves. To what extent was the work they were doing back then, has it led to where we're at now? I used to be able to take a map of Pennsylvania where where there was hate group activity and then take like election results and like do with with transparencies Mm -hmm. and you could, you could, you can follow the vote. You could follow votes that way. You could follow the vote for like for this past election mm-hmm. for Trump. And was there also like change over time in that? Like, yeah, like yeah. Sort the, the, of counties you, had been more democratic, and then mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. Eight, eight yeah, years as, as as they became as as they became poorer, um, as there were fewer jobs. You know, people are. You know, I mean, I don't have to tell you guys. People are really struggling. You know, I know a, a guy in my neighborhood um, who drives Uber, cuts grass, mm-hmm. and works part-time cleaning a vet's office. They're all part-time jobs with no benefits. Mm-hmm. You know, probably 20, 30 years ago, he probably would have worked in the mill. So he's isolated in his work. He doesn't have a co-worker to talk to. Right, right. 
It's really hard. I mean, I think a lot of the work that we need to do and a lot of what I learned from the hate groups, and it wasn't just the Klan, it was also, you know, the the neo-Nazis were in there too, was that they do create a sense of community. They do create a sense of, even today, you know, they, they create a sense of community. And we have to figure out how to, how to do that and to do that better. So, I've, yeah, I've been told that that really comes across in, uh, I haven't brought myself to watch it, but like the videos of Richard Spencer talking on college campuses, mm-hmm. people sort of having a sense of like community kind of tent revival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's really effective, you know, and especially if you feel that you, even though you're the majority or you're, you are the most privileged or have the most power, but you, you feel threatened and you can connect with somebody else. It's very powerful. It's very, very powerful. And I believe that even though we kicked the Klan and the neo-Nazis out of all these little towns and villages and hamlets in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, they left a mark. Their presence left a mark because they picked up on something that was there. It was fear. It was loss of control. It was whatever they picked up on it. So you were doing all this organizing before the Internet existed, and now there's the Internet, and I wonder if that kind of organizing really looks different now. The organizing that the Klan was trying to do, for instance, if they're approaching it differently... um, I think it's much more it's much more sophisticated with the internet, and they've you know they've 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 evolved they've they've evolved and I think the methods that we use back in the mid '90s and late '90s to organize I mean those are those were good methods but I think we have to evolve too I mean the you know singing hymns just doesn't doesn't always work you know it's well, part of it doesn't work. The problem is, is online, it's very difficult to confront, sort of get in between the clan and the people they're trying to uh, recruit it, mm-hmm. compared to the sort of things that you're talking about, where you can really bring out the leadership in the community and take a stand against it and sort of turn people away from it. You can't do that online. No, you can't. It's very, it's, 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 it's very hard. And marches, I don't think, do it either. I think it really talks, really, we're talking about building a progressive political base. I think that's the answer. So do you want to explain how to do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, In all these cases, were the, was the Klan an outsider? coming into a town, or did they have organic, a kind of organic organization? They had, they made contact with somebody in the, in the town, you know. And and that's what would draw them there, is that there'd be somebody who was responding to them. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes, this was rare, but sometimes it was just an issue, and they would come in and you know, you'd wake up in the morning, you'd have all these clan flyers, which they still do. Um, and actually here in Pittsburgh, not so long ago in the Jewish community was, um, there were a lot of, uh, flyers put out by the, by the, I don't know if it was the clan or what, but it was the same kind of ugly flyers that I saw in 1997, 98. In, in these places, um, what would the role of the police be? The interesting thing, and this is, I just thought of this. Okay. In Pennsylvania at the time, um, 
protected status did not include sexual orientation. Okay, so you couldn't, you know, you, I mean, somebody make a death threat against somebody or hurt somebody that was just a crime, but mm -hmm. it was not a hate crime of any sort. And, you know, the state police were not obligated. But now, and the other thing is, a lot of times these little towns did not have their own police force. Right. You know, at, you know so the state police, like in this particular town where the gay bar was, the state police were wonderful. Mm -hmm. They, they went undercover and used to come to our meetings. Um, you know, it was it was it was pretty. I was I was very impressed with that. But I don't think they would have done that if the community hadn't started organizing. I don't think we would have gotten the cooperation of the state police in Yukon if the community hadn't been organized if we hadn't been able to selectively figure out what local politicians to use to get them to, to you know, to, to get involved and put pressure on them. So in some cases, I guess you could say it was dangerous because there we were passing out cookies and lemonade in Yukon and there wasn't anybody there to protect us. Mm -hmm. um, right. You know, and, and those are pretty brave people. I could go home at night, but they had to live there. People knew where they lived. Nobody knew where I lived. So I was always impressed with how brave people were. And I mean, these were quiet acts of courage, but they were very strong acts of courage. I was always very impressed with that. I mean, is, is the work that you did at the Pennsylvania Network, to what extent could it be a model today? I think it's a model in that, you know, using the, the cultural norms of the community, the better norms of a community, using those to as the springboard to, to speak out. But then also, you know, and this is the hard work and this is where, you know, it's hard to get people to do this on an ongoing basis, but to figure out how to sustain a movement that's built on these values, which I maintain are basically progressive values. You may not want to call them that because that would scare people away. But, you know, when you really start talking to people, what do they want? You know, they want a, they want a decent job for themselves. They want a better future for their kids. They want to be able to afford to live in a nice house. They want health care. Um, you know, you don't, they're not going to, you know, you're not going to say socialized medicine to them, but they <laughs> right. want, they want health care. They want health care. They just, you know, they just sort of feel like everybody else is getting health care, but them. And so by working on those issues, I think, you know, th that's important. That's important. There's one that I thought was really interesting. This was in a, another not quite rural, not quite urban, but a place where there was mining and mills at one time. Mm -hmm. And the clan, another clan group showed up. Because this was around um, a halfway house for kids that had some trouble with the law. And they were, uh, were going to organize the community to fight those kids from coming into our towns. They find out about that through somebody in town. Like what, what brought the clan to town? to agitate around this halfway house. There was an article in the paper, local paper about it, or a public hearing, and Klan got whiff of it. Somebody called the Klan. Somebody had a buddy that was in the Klan. I'm not really sure. I uh, never could figure that one out. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, the Klan 
came um, and there were people at that Klan rally, from what I understand, that were local people. Um, and how, how far, uh, how many people, so you say they came, so uh, they had a rally and they brought people in from other places, and how many people would that be? Oh, I really can't remember. I mean, it varied from town to town. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, you know, they would usually do the county courthouse and we would find a public park or a, um, in area or church, what they call church groves in uh, some of the more rural parts of the state. Mm-hmm. What the Klan was doing was to basically come and do a picket of some sort. Mm-hmm. And, you know, hate speech and, you know, uh, and really trying to antagonize the community into having a, a confrontation. Who, and who did they I want to have a confrontation a, with? The Klan wanted to have a, a confrontation with, with the residents or outside people from the community. They wanted to have a, you know, a fight in the streets. Hmm. And it was important to try to get people to understand that wasn't, that's what they wanted. They wanted the publicity. And while you don't ignore them and be silent, you know, like you don't do nothing because you have to have something for people to who are outraged by this to go to and participate in. Um, but you do it away from where they're doing it and you do activities before, during and after. So that's what we would do. And then would they do much organizing beyond that, really, then? In other words, Some, that was sort of their primary approach was to try to get press. Yeah, in some places they did, in some places it fell through. They couldn't get, you know, they couldn't get a, a grip on the community. I mean, what does it suggest about some of the more confrontational activists that you see now around, you know, on the left and sort of this anti-fa movement? Yeah. And I mean, what's your feeling about that, given your experiences? Oh, my. I'm, I've just it's it's so it's become so complicated because this because you know as we talked earlier about you know the internet and the breakdown of community and the breakdown of unions it just makes it so much harder to organize so here you have this you want to do something to stop it and so there's a part of me that just wants to go out and, and bust heads I mean stuff like this makes me angry um, but that is really what what they want and maybe you know, maybe there's a time and place later on, but right now we don't have the, the power to, to confront them in that way. I don't know if this is something that's relevant or not, but I remember hearing that when the hate groups were going to do something in Berkeley, the Longshoremen's Union were going to show up. And then the hate group decided they weren't going to do it. <laughs> and um, I thought, okay, if I was having uh, something to protest the presence of a hate group, the alt-right, I'd sure want the longshoremen on my side. Right, right. So I guess they kind of called a, a general strike or something. Uh, they weren't going to work that day. They were going to show up. Um, so, you know, I don't know... I, I don't think that violence is the answer. I think political power is the answer. Mm-hmm. But it's it's very it's it's really really hard. I mean, I've I've talked to anti-flop people. I've I've seen them on the street with their T-shirts, and we've had some really really good discussions. Um, um, but uh, they just feel like they're doing the right thing. That, that this has to stop. You know, this is like Nazi Germany all over again. And you know, if we could just stop them now, you know we'll be able to stop them in the future. 
and it's a rather I think it's rather simplistic because you've got to you've got to build a sense of power you've got to build a sense of progressive socialist power I mean that's my my opinion but I really appreciate your coming and talking with us today um, it was uh, it was nice to meet you it's nice to meet you too thanks Mia for joining us on the smash up derby um, again we've been talking with uh, Mia Jinta who uh, former organizer with the Pennsylvania Network of Unity Coalitions and uh, before that uh, UE organizer if you have any questions or comments you can hit us up on our Twitter account at smash up podcast uh, subscribe to us on iTunes on Google Play wherever you get your podcasts to let your friends know about this uh, about the smash up derby Thanks so much for listening.